My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by uh, Ernst van Zyl, um, who also goes by the name Conscious Caracal on YouTube and Twitter, and by Robert Dwigan, uh, who is also uh, going by the name of Marhobane, also on, on YouTube and on Twitter. Uh, welcome, guys. Oh, mm. thank you for having us on, Alex. Uh, looking forward to the chat. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to, to have you both on because you are experts in a, in a very um, murky topic, a very dark topic, uh, a very a topic that's shrouded in a media blackout for most of the rest of the world. Uh, and it is South Africa. You know, you, you guys are on the ground. You've been talking about these subjects for a long time. So I'm really excited to, to get your perspective on things. It is, it is really interesting. Like as, as someone, I'm, I live in Romania. I'm, I'm interested in general and what's happening in the world, but it seems seems like South Africa is having a moment at the moment, or maybe it has been having a moment for the last, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, but there is a flare up of the moment at the moment. Uh, yeah, so... that's, uh, that's what I wanted to say is uh, I think South Africa has been having a moment for a while. And I don't think people, you'd be mistaken if you thought South Africa's uh, experimental nature only started in 1994. We've been the, uh, the laboratory of empires for a long while, but uh, we're definitely going to get into that, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we can get into it right away. I mean, this this is my question, like, essentially, what what's going on? And what, what precipitated what is going on now? Because from my perspective, what I see are, are fragments on Twitter, you know, there are a few images, you know, everything's looking a bit post apocalyptic, there's widespread looting, there things are burning, people are in the streets, there's kind of like an armed insurrection, but also kind of a mass, uh, you know, wave of destruction. So what's what's been the precipitating moment for that? So I think I'll do a do a little introduction there, seeing as my colleague here, Robert, is the meat and potatoes type of analysis guy. So uh, I'll lay the foundation and then uh, give the mic over to him. Um, so in regards to South Africa and what you're seeing flare up here in 2021 now is something that's been coming along a long while. And it's not something that we have immense amount of consensus about uh, how we got here. There's a lot of debate regarding that. That's maybe one of the main questions that we, we have in South Africa as people that analyze politics and analyze history is how did we get here uh, specifically in 2021. Now, Maybe you reference now the, the unrest and the looting here in South Africa. So maybe let's just use that as the, the basis for this. So when you saw this year, billions of rands of damage, you saw thousands of businesses destroyed. You saw neighborhoods being threatened, uh, hundreds of people killed. Uh, shocking imagery that shocked the world. I mean, I told a lot of people, some of my contacts, that uh, when this just started mm -hmm. going off, I told them they need to keep an eye on South Africa. Things are going to get very hairy. And luckily they did. Um, but there's a lot to unpack here. But maybe just to, to start off, uh, the big thing here is that this is not something that just happened overnight. It's not something that's been brewing for five years. It's something that's been brewing for decades. So 
there's a lot of narratives surrounding the unrest, what caused it. Some are saying it's a planned or failed insurrection. That's language that your American listeners might be very, uh, very acquainted with. But then there's also people that are, that are the camp that I fall into that I think it's more of the, the long-term effects of just malgovernance, corruption, and the uh, ANC, the ruling party's obsession with their ideology and their uh, obsessive uh, uh, furthering of the NDR, the National Democratic Revolution, which is the uh, old Soviet theory. But anyway, so what I saw happening here in the unrest and the looting is pretty much, so the let's say you have an Olympic swimming pool full with petrol or gas, wherever you come from, and you just throw a match into it and you get this massive fire. Now that match would have been the, the incarceration of former president Jacob Zuma, uh, not on corruption charges, which he has plenty of, uh, but rather on a contempt of court charge, which is pretty weak. Um, but that kind of kicked it off. That was the match that was cast into this open felt that uh, then caught fire. So then you get this, this unrest and the people all over in South Africa and abroad are scurrying and scrambling to try and analyze what's going on here some hit the mark, some of them uh, not so much, uh, but yeah, that is the, the gist of it. That's the foundation of what you saw happen here. It is the culmination of just monumental, catastrophic government failure in regards to the ruling party that's been in power for 27 years. That's my take on it, but Robert's definitely going to have uh, uh, his own angle, and I'm, I'm also interested to hear it. Yeah, I mean the 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 big thing with the big thing with the the situation in KwaZulu Natal, which is our most, I think it's I think it's our most populous um, province of the nine provinces. Um, the thing about them is that that's where the Zulu uh, nation comes from, and I mean South Africa is very heterogeneous. You've got, I mean, aside from the four racial the traditional racial uh, divisions, which are white, coloured, black, and Indian colored being a very sort of weird uh catch-all term for uh, the uh indigenous community uh the mixed race community and the malay community um who all sort of became to, to differing degrees homogenized during during the apartheid era um the 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 thing is that the black community which forms the majority are composed of uh there's the Nguni lot, which is uh, which is the Kaza, the Zulu, the Swati, and the Ndebele. And if you look at like on the one side, there's Swaziland. That's that it's a tiny little landlocked state that's the last um, absolute monarchy. Um, funnily enough, one thing that is much missed because of all the violence that was going on in South Africa is that exa- at exactly the same time, there was an attempted communist revolution in Swaziland to depose the monarch. Um, using much of the same sort of on the ground tactics, but largely supported by uh, largely supported by the EFF, who is an, a minority. Oi, there goes my um, my mic stand. Um, uh, they're a, they're a minority party in South Africa, but they are part of what should be what could probably be called the Charterist movement. Um, so. The Charterist movement is basically ANC and allies. So the, uh, the Freedom Charter is something that they passed in 1955. And it's this really aggressive sort of communist um, document. And the, the, the key provision amongst them, aside from the usual, you know, universal education, universal health care, that kind of stuff, 
nationalization of industry is this one provision, which is that anyone should be allowed to settle on any piece of land with, you know, anywhere at any time. Um, and this is sort of a, a, a wishful return to pre-colonial African land policy, which is a hundred years ago, South Africa was very sparsely populated. We're like three times the size of Germany uh, in terms of land area. But a uh, hundred years ago, we didn't even have 20 million people in it. So it was very sparsely populated. You had plenty of arable land, but um, population growth meant that uh, access to agricultural land was slowly crushed because we we're fairly arid. But the traditional method of settling land is if you didn't like where you're staying, you didn't like the chief that you were under, you up sticks and you leave. And some other chief will say, oh, well, you can go farm over there because Sipo uses, uses that grazing ground on Tuesdays, but that's about it. And, you know, so very, very sort of loose, open, not yet enclosed land. I mean, uh, but now everything is enclosed and they're still trying to return to this kind of thing. Um, and the Freedom Charter forms this sort of holy document that binds the ANC and the EFF and even the PAC um, in terms of, and these are three different black nationalist parties. And then also um, the Tripartite Alliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the ANC that rules at the moment is composed of an alliance between uh, COSATU, which is the Congress of South African Trade Unions. Uh, so mo it, it, most of the, the acronyms in South Africa are like these pronounceable th things that sound like African words like Kasatu and Nehawu and all these things. But um, the, the other partner in the Tripartite Alliance is the Communist Party, and they've been actually the seat of policy design for decades. The other biggest contributor to ANC policy design is the Brenthurst Foundation, which is something that is run by... Um, the Oppenheimer family group, which have dominated the South African economy since the 1920s. Um, and in the 1980s, uh, during divestment and sanctions, they managed to uh, get 80% control of the formal economy in South Africa. So they like a condition in, they like economic conditions in which uh, foreign investment disappears because it allows them to consolidate and gobble up local industry. Um, which is why in 2003, they designed what is now the Black Economic Empowerment Framework, uh, which was implemented by uh, President Thabo Mbeki. And this basically says that you have to give away 26% of your company to, uh, to some black people, whoever, whoever they are. And that usually means that the government threatens them with, uh, threatens them with, with obstruction if they don't pick candidates who are allied with the ruling party. So it's a slow means to sort of get uh, party control of the economy, but it's it's sort of half and half. The mi the mineral in the mineral industrial and complex is still largely controlled by Anglo-American and um, and corporations like this who are tied to old colonial powers like the British, uh, so like Lonro and their group. Yeah, uh, Anglo-American is very uh, aptly named. <laughs> yeah, that's but that's the that's the Oppenheimer group. So that was started by uh, German Jewish immigrants. Um, I'm actually in the middle of reading a book about them, <laughs> which is why I'm uh, on them. Is uh, but the Oppenheimers are, are big players. And uh, interestingly enough, the there's another um, there's another Jewish billionaire from Swaziland called Nati Kirsch, who also made a lot of money off uh, off of the segregation era. Uh, but he sponsors the economic freedom fighters, if my information is correct. Um, 
and uh, yeah, so that that, that that creates a problem. So the economic freedom fighters are about eight years old, and they were they they comprise the old youth most of the old youth league of the African National Congress, and they're headed up by an extremely firebrand genocidal maniac called um, Julius Malema, and he's he's he him and the current president are both part of these very tiny ethnic minorities. So he, uh, Malema is a pedi and um, Soro Ramaphosa is Venda. Um, and Jacob Zuma, who is the president that's, who's fall from grace is the cause of all of this kind of, you know, brouhaha and KZN. He's a Zulu. Now, Zulu are about 22% of the population, so they're the largest ethnic group. And um, the ANC was dominated by Kosa, who are only 8% of the population, uh, for their entire um, sort of presence. They've been around since 1912, back when they were just a party for black bourgeois and uh, royalty. So they've been like a party of the intelligentsia for a long time. And um, they, they allied with the commun- Soviet Union in the 1950s, and they, they ran a, a, an armed people's war uh, from 1978 until 1993, in which they butchered between 20 and 50,000 people. Um, and uh, yeah, so a party that considers violence and cruelty to be sort of acceptable if your political goals are okay. Uh, they still they still hold up Winnie Mandela, who's known for burning children alive in the streets as a as a hero, um, and so the, the general culture is a very thuggish one. And a lot of the way that they gained um, uh, financial resources during the struggle against apartheid against white rule was on the back of drugs trading. And so you've got uh, guys who who made their money in those eras like that, uh, like um, Patrice Motsepe and Toke Sekhwale uh, being very, very powerful, influential people in the ANC after, um, you know, after democracy. Um, but the Zulus being shut out uh, became kind of a problem because uh, during, as, as apartheid started disintegrating, there the there was a party that fought against um, a party that was Zulu Nationalist Party called the Inkata Freedom Party. In the, the IFP, that's you know, the Inkata Freedom Party, they um, they wanted a federal solution for South Africa, if not independence for the Zulu nation. And the ANC and the IFP went went to went through a very very bloody conflict that lasted for years before they were forced to step down and. Um, uh, and accept the, uh, the 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 open democratic um, elections in '94, um, and in order to incorporate them, uh, because the, they still held a great deal of the votes in that province, um, uh, Thabo Mbeki put Jacob Zuma in, in as deputy president, but he started making his own demands and so on. And in order to try and sideline him and maintain control over the party. Uh, the president launched corruption charges against him, which is a bad move because, of course, the president was involved in his own form of corruption, which is the infamous arms deal. Uh, billions and billions of rand spent on unnecessary arms and stuff from French and Italian uh, arms companies. And, um, yeah, so Jacob Zuma spent the next few years uh, delaying and delaying and delaying in the courts until he managed to launch a massive campaign within the ANC to get uh, to get elected leader. He deposed uh, Mbeki as president in 2009. 
he had a guy called Kalemo Mutlante uh, hold the presidency for one year so that he could get his so that he could get his constitutionally fulfilled two years in term. So the end of that one term gets Kalemo Mutlante. Zuma gets these two years in, uh, in off, uh, these two terms in office. And during this time, he basically showed the middle finger to every liberal international uh, organization. So he says, you know, constitutional, uh, the, the International Criminal Court can sod off. Um, we're not going to arrest Omar Bashir. Um, and uh, he stole he stole a huge amount of money to build this mansion in rural Kwazulu uh, Natal. It's called Nkandla. And it's basically a pal- palace complex. It's enormous. Um, and interestingly enough, it was the exact same size. The amount of money that was stolen for that is the exact same size as the UK foreign aid budget for that year. Mm. And um, exactly uh, like a couple of months later, the uh, the British stopped supplying aid to South Africa. And so I, I, I suspect it was, he just told them, sorry, I'm just taking this money, <laughs> which I mean, as corrupt and brutal as the bugger is, uh, I, uh, I part of me admires his uh, his testicular fortitude, but yeah, it doesn't it, last it, forever. And in in 2017, there's a leadership challenge from uh, Sol Ramaphosa, who was pipped to be the successor to Nelson Mandela back in the late 90s, but he lost out. And this time, tons of money got flooded in from international organizations. Uh, which he used to bribe most of the officers, uh, the local branches. He also used an enormous amount of violence. And there was about 300 or so, 300 to 400 political assassinations in KZN alone during this period um, in order to get control of the party. And so our current president has gotten where he's gotten by bribery and murder. Um, and he, he was endorsed by The Economist. The Economist actually ran an article at the time where they said, Look, we know that the DA sort of kind of conformed to our liberal values, but you should really vote for Sora Mapoza nonetheless, despite the fact that he's advocating for racial discrimination and socialism and all of this, because he'll really clean up the corruption in the country. Of course, that didn't happen, and corruption under his watch has been far worse than it has been under Jacob Zuma. Um, and he's, but, but what he has done is he's started prosecuting Jacob Zuma's uh, patronage network. So this puts a whole lot of pressure on 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 um, Jacob Zuma, and it finally gets to crunch time, and he decides actually screw all of these inquiries that you're doing. I don't respect them, so he gets contempt of court, and the, I don't think that the trigger was actually the contempt of court charge. I think the trigger was actually something that happened the day the thing that happened literally the day before the riot was kicked off, which was Solaramaposa disbanded Umkuntu Esizwe. Now, Mkuntu Esizwe is the military organization that was started by Nelson Mandela back in the 60s. And it's, um, despite the fact that they're supposed to just be like veterans, supposedly, they're still training a lot of young people who are being funded through a pension scheme. Um, and they were the main people, including uh, a lot of Zuma loyalists in in our version of the CIA, which is the SSA. Um they basically organized this nationwide shutdown where they targeted the main economic corridor between the port in Durban and Johannesburg and encouraged people to target what they called white monopoly capital, any retail outlet or, um, or storage warehouse or anything that was owned by the, the white economy. Um, because they can't, they, uh, and I mean, some of the clever things that they, that Zuma did in the meantime is he actually set up uh, duplicate ANC branches all over KZN 
So you've got this whole thing where the, the party no longer has any control over its branches at the local level. Everything is chaos and it's split. But once they did the economic shutdown, the rioting was inevitable and uh, everything went, went to shit. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the picture you're painting is uh, essentially of a, a very uh, complex uh, banana republic, a very large banana republic that's been kind of un, un, unfolding throughout the years. Um, uh, Ernst, you were, you were mentioning a, a swimming pool um, and gas or, or, I don't know, kerosene in it. Um, mm. What do you think is the main ingredient in that swimming pool? Like, what's, what's been the, you know, the catalyst to, to, to this accumulating problem? Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of corruption. I mean, I come from Eastern Europe. I know corruption, but it has a different flavor here, to, to be honest. I mean, this, this sounds so a bit got, more aggressive. Mm, so you've got two main elements here. The one element is just astronomical levels of incompetence and corruption and a, a ruling party that has no incentive to actually solve the problems of South Africa. I mean, this is the same type of ruling party that just a year or so ago bragged about the amount of South Africans that are now on government social grants. Now, this is pretty much their bread and butter when it comes to the ANC. They want a dependent population because then they can always, when election years roll around, they can always just uh, bring out old reliable, the, the line that if you vote in any other party, they will take away your grants. We are, and the tap will be closed and you will not get any uh, of the grants you need to survive. So they've got a very strong firm hold uh, on the population when it, or the electorate rather. So a lot of people are always puzzled when they see the amount of support that the ANC still has, but there's a lot of reasons for it. And actually me and Robert had a great discussion on it on my channel on why do people vote for the ANC, but that's a whole different topic. Now, the other element here, and it's, it's a bit more abstract, this one, is the fact that we're being ruled by a class of South Africans that don't understand or value culture or tradition. They are a class of South Africans that are pretty much urbanites. They are completely severed from the the rural roots or where they come from they don't understand not they don't maybe they under some of them under, understand culture but they don't have any value for it and that's a very dangerous thing in a country like south africa where you have as robert uh, described there at the beginning you have over you have 11 official languages so when americans or when foreign uh, analysts look at south africa they often make the mistake that they think it's a the the dynamics can be summed up as uh, whites and black or along racial lines, but that's completely not the case. Even uh, the white population is uh, very starkly divided between English and Afrikaans or Afrikaners and Anglos. And then in the black population, you have even more cultural diversity. You have the, the Khorsas, the Chongas, the Vendas, the Sutus, the Pedis, uh, the list goes on. And that's not even talking about the Indian and the colored population. So you've got this immense cultural diversity and it's not like the like a, uh, I've told uh, people in the in the past when they asked me if there were ever ever a civil war were to erupt in South Africa, what would it look like? Well, it would definitely not be white versus black. It would be between cultural factions. It would be between these myriad of different factions that are binded specifically by their heritage and by their culture. And what you see here, for example, you have a history of my culture, Afrikaners allying with many of the black cultures against other white Europeans. Uh, so 
if you're looking through a race nationalist lens at South Africa, some things are not going to make sense to you. It's going to be very tricky to figure out what's going on because you're going to see different black uh, groups in South Africa hating each other and they share the same race, but they, they'd rather work with uh, another white culture than with uh, their, their black brethren, as, a, as it would be said in that lens. Now, what you see in South Africa then, as I said, the, this other arm of why we got to this point is you have a, a government that is part of an experiment. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that South Africa, if Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires, South Africa is definitely the, the, the laboratory of empires. And what was tried in South Africa, I mean, in the 90s, they literally called it the South African experiment. Today, they call it the South African project. It sounds a bit better on the ear. But in the 90s, the South African experiment, this is not some fringe opinion, this is what it genuinely was referred to as, was that we can build, we can do nation building, and this is a word that you heard a lot now in the wake of Afghanistan and the withdrawal from there, people were talking about nation building projects. In South Africa, it wasn't done through a military occupation, as you would see in the Middle East, for example. In South Africa, the nation building was tried through a big government, where you create this artificial identity, where South Africans see themselves as proudly South African. They see themselves as South African rather than Zulu or Kosa or Afrikaner or Anglo. And it kind of becomes their new number one identity. So there's this uh, South African politician, Fancel Slubert, that coined the, the, the phrase, the, the hierarchy of identities. So in South Africa, every South African has a hierarchy of identities. And it's not unique to South Africa, but here it's very evident where if you ask me, for example, what are you first? Firstly, I would say I'm Christian and I'm an Afrikaner. My first answer is not going to be I'm a South African. Um, if you would say, if you can keep your South African ID, but you have to give up your Africana and your Christian identity, I would say, well, then you can keep your South African identity document. So that is the big issue in a country like South Africa. And that's why it's such an excellent experiment as well, because this is something as the West becomes more diverse, this is kind of the ideal that you want. All these different cultures and religions kind of give that up and adopt this new artificial identity of I am German or I am American. You see it a lot in this philosophy of anyone can be an American as long as they love freedom. Uh, that's all you need. Um, and this was, but this is something that's been experimented with in South Africa for a very long time. That's pretty much what we're living through now is the end stages of that experiment or that project collapsing is that people will always, when the, when the shit hits the fan, people are always going to fall back on those cultural identities. Well, I can speak from experience in South Africa. So you can see, for example, the organization that I work for Afri Forum, which is part of the broader solidarity movement. It is, a, it is a movement that is based on identity. Now, we live in a time where a lot of people say, oh, identity politics is poisoning everything. But I mean, if you're me as a, a super minority in South Africa, when I fight for my language rights so that I can speak my language or be educated in my language, that is identity politics. And what we're seeing here, for example, the Solidarity Movement and Afri Forum is that it is an organized, let's take Afri Forum, the organization that I work for specifically. It is an organization that fights for civil rights in South Africa, but it has an Afrikaner identity to it that you can't separate it from. For example, we will always publish all our documents in Afrikaans first and then English. Uh, everyone at work speaks Afrikaans. We all share a culture. Uh, if you are, for example, if you, if you disrespect Afrikaner culture or you say, well, 
uh, Christianity is a barbaric religion and I hate Christianity. You're not going to be able to work for Afriforum. Well, if you say you hate Afrikaners, but you love civil rights, you're not going to be able to work for this civil rights organization. So in South Africa, this is a microcosm of what you're seeing in the broader South Africa as well. As if you want to, if the, uh, you mentioned it now, you said this sounds very complex and South Africa is very complex, but you're not going to be able to understand it if you look at just through, through a lens of white people and black people. You're going to have to look at South Africa through a lens of there are different black cultures, there are different white cultures, there are different cultures vying for different goals in South Africa. And they, it's not like there's only one or two cultures that value their culture above everything else. South Africans are very attached to their cultural identity. I mean, I have a lot of Chwana friends, for example, that value their Chwana culture very highly. And uh, they, they are proud of Botswana, a country that they don't even live in, but it's their version of Israel. That's pretty much the Chwana Israel, where it's a country where the majority of people living there are Chwana. They speak Sichwana and they uphold Chwana values. So even Chwanas living in South Africa are proud of what Botswana does, for example. And that's their cultural identity coming to the fore. Something that, for example, a lot of liberals would like to deny because everyone's an individual, your cultural identity or having any value in your culture, that's, that's barbaric, that's backwards. We've transcended it, every individual for himself. He can make his own choices and uh, he doesn't need his culture or his community. But that's, uh, that's the lie that's collapsing now in South Africa. And with the unrests and all the problems that you see here is pretty much a symptom of that collapse where the project is failing. The experiment didn't work. And uh, now we're left with uh, left to pick up the pieces. Yeah. Do you feel that um, kind of this, this American framework of, of white versus black is being pushed on, on South Africa is kind of like, this is the, this is the framework that we see the world through. Like even in Romania, you know, people think about, I don't know, abortion rights in Texas and things like that. So it's, it's kind of the universal lens. And do you think that that influences how politics is is done or maybe how the elite stratum sees the conflict because it seems that you know in, in every country now there is you know call it a neoliberal elite or you know just a stratum of people who are a bit more disconnected from what's happening on the ground and they do tend to see the world through this black and white american empire lens uh and mm. th does that skew how how things are happening in, in south africa or is everyone you know do they know what's going on no, absolutely. It, 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 just a, a, a quick thought there. It absolutely skews analysis of South Africa. For example, you'll see, as Rob correctly pointed out, you'll see these different cultural factions within the ANC, Zulus and Kozas, and you won't understand why does this one faction and this, why is this factional war tearing the ANC apart, but it's not on racial lines, it's on cultural lines. And you'll see the same thing, for example, take a Afrikaners and uh, Anglos in South Africa. The difference culturally is so stark that you can actually see that the one group, the Anglos, it's, are much more liberal. They're much more individual rights based. And an Afrikaner, without even talking to him, if I walk up to him in the street, my culture, an Afrikaner or a Boer, if you will, if I ask him, what are your opinions on this and this and this issue, I can pretty much be sure that nine out of 10 times we're going to agree on values and he's going to be a lot more based than if I was talking to some uh, white liberal in Cape Town or an Anglo in Cape Town. These, these uh, differences are very stark. And I mean, this is something that it's fading in regards to the, 
the tensions between the Anglos and the Afrikaners, but not too long ago, just a generation ago, it was actually a very big scandal in an Afrikaner family if you married uh, an Anglo woman or male, for example, because that would mean you're marrying the enemy, you're marrying uh, the group of people that put your ancestors into concentration camps. So these are very, very uh, important nuances that people need to understand. And I'm just giving you the, the one snippet from an Afrikaner's perspective, but these exist all across the spectrum. They exist in the black communities in South Africa as well. You have certain groups that despise each other specifically because of stuff, things that happened in the past 500 years on blood feuds. South Africa still has cultural blood feuds that exist in the 21st century. And I think Rob uh, can elaborate on your question, but that's just one I wanted to add there. Yeah, I think I think the big thing I would say here is instead of trying to, I th there's a big sort of yes and no thing going on. If you want to talk about the black-white question, South Africa, if there is, it's, it's quite old. Uh, we don't frame it in the same way that the Americans do because for Americans, it's not the cultural divide between white and black is not all that great, um, even though there's a lot of diffidence between the two groups. Uh, you know, in South Africa, you've got, it's not just like a uh, white and black skin color. You've got this huge cultural dimension here where sort of you've got this African, largely pagan um, population. And even now that they most, uh, there's quite a degree of Christianization, the Christian denominations which dominate black South Africa are so completely different from anything you get in the West. I mean, if you go and look at the, the Zionist Christian church, generally referred to as the ZCC, they wear military uniforms and like, it's all of this weird faith healing stuff. And they have their own, they have their own sort of like spiritual homeland in the North of the country. They do pilgrimages every year. Um, very, very, very different uh, spiritually, politically, culturally. Um, the, the languages, the whole structure of the languages are nothing like, um, uh, European languages. Um, and so there's a big divide. And you've got to remember that South Africa was really created as a white nation. There's an attempt to fuse English and Afrikaners as a, as a sort of compromise of not being able to eradicate the Afrikaners uh, in the Second World War. So but they turn the Afrikaners kind of into Anglos. <laughs> yes. And so you had, uh, you had a former uh, general in the Boer army who ended up as the architect of the New South Africa. This is General Jan Smuts. And he, sort of, he, he was also a philosopher who was considered by his uh, contemporaries in Cambridge as being the equal of like John Milton and, um, and, uh, and Darwin and stuff like yeah, that. And he so, wrote many of uh, Winston Churchill's speeches. Yeah, he did. Um, but so Jan Smuts, Jan Smuts had this very interesting and weird philosophy. And I think it's very important for understanding South Africa because he also single-handedly wrote our constitution, which lasted for 50 years. He wrote the, he wrote the entire League of Nations constitution single-handed. He came up with the frame for the Balfour Declaration, the partition of Ireland, the Commonwealth of Nations, uh, the whole fucking shebang. All of these sort of British empire reforms that happened in the early 20th century, you can see Smuts's hand in it all the time. Enormously influential. Um, and his philosophy, in which he sort of propounded in this book, uh, Holism and Evolution, it's sort of like if you can imagine Nick Land as an optimist would be, would be how I would frame it. Is it's, it's sort of like this combination of uh, like Bergsonian, Elan Vital and, you know, Darwinian evolution and uh, all of this kind of weird... Um, how should I put it? It's, it's sort of, because uh, a lot of he, the people that he got his ideas from were like, you know, these New England 
uh, intellectuals from the, the New England Transcendental Movement, you know, you know uh, um, uh, Walt Whitman and Thoreau and all of these people. And he combined it with an appreciation of German idealism. And so his book really functions as this sort of complete sort of here's this German idealist model. And much like Hegel, he has he picks an actual existing um, uh, political organization as the world spirit embodied. And for him, that's the League of Nations. So the entire point of all matter in the universe is to co- is to evolve into more complex, higher unified wholes um, that culminates in a global gov- world government. So this is uh, th- this is his sort of uh, philosophy and his idea is that all of these different nations and whatever they have to be approached with uh, and this is an idea he borrows from British gov- uh, British colonial governments is they they have to be seen as trust uh, we we have to be seen as trustees of these sort of lower developed nations who are who have the same potential as we do they just need to be shepherded into enlightenment and so when he partitioned the country uh, when he in, uh, partitioned the country in 1913 and sort of uh, delineated the limits of the black areas in um it it was it, it was it was a position it was a compromise position he made with the the white electorate so this is the whole thing that uh, apartheid actually came about as a compromise because when you get to the height of apartheid you actually see all of these weird contradictory ideas like uh there's an, uh, something called Cup, which it comes from uh the Hermetic Hypothesis, which is an idea from Abraham Kuypers, who was a prime minister of the Netherlands at the turn of the century and also one of the most influential Calvinist theologians uh, of his generation. Um, and his ideas became consensus amongst um, the, the Engekerk in, in South Africa. Which is yeah, the and Afrikaners are heavily Calvinist. Right. So his idea was basically, if anyone doesn't know what the Hermetic Hypothesis is, basically uh, Noah's sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and uh, Ham sees his, uh, his father, uh, his drunk father naked, and he gets cursed to be the, his descendants to be the servants of the other two uh, brothers, you know, whatever. And so Kuiper said, okay, well, Ham is actually, those are the Africans, and uh, Japheth are the white people, and, and Shem are, you know, these Asiatic and Semitic peoples. So um, the the idea is that, you know, black people are naturally inferior and have to be sort of, you know, there's this permanent caste system. And that's that was referred to here as Boscup. But then there's also the English sort of uh, progressive trusteeship model, and that's the that's the idea of we we raise them up and we educate them and bring them into civilization. There's the other uh, the other element of separate development, which is to say, okay, well their cultures are very different. They need to have their own nations. They're their own people, and. Then there's apartheid, which is the, the, the petty apartheid itself, which is um, just simply arises out of, a dis, uh, out of a natural distrust between different ethnic groups who have bad blood between them. And so you have, when you get to the height of apartheid, you get, uh, you get all of these weird things clashing and none of the systems are possible. You look at the Bantistan, uh, uh, the Bantistan map of the time, it's like all of these like little discontinuous bubbles all over the place. It's like looking, uh, the, 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 the Palestinian activists are right to draw a parallel there because if you have discontinuous territory, it's, it's not really manageable long-term and everyone can see that there's a, there's, um, it's not entirely legitimate. The the reason for this is is entirely due to uh, due to an, an attempt to follow Western trends following World War One. So uh, 
after World War One, there was a big demand for uh, suffrage for for the general white population. Whereas beforehand, in the Cape, which is where I'm from, there was a non-racial franchise that only applied to people who had property. So if you own property, you can vote regardless of who you are. Um, and oh, racial animosity was fairly minimal over here in the Cape. But what happened is that after th there was a mine revolt because all of the, uh, all of the uh, black areas were sending young men to go work in the mines uh, to earn money because it was better than subsistence farming. So you now get this pressure. White people want the color bar so that they don't have people competing with their, their, their labors. And now you see it's like the, mining, um, the, the, the migrant crisis that we see in the West now. Um, you've got in, you've got a country that's actually a constellation of little nations, which has now open borders economics. South African Communist Party lobbied for a white South Africa, so that, you know it's, it's Nasbols before it was uh, popular, and the response from Jan Smuts was to violently machine gun all of the the union protesters, but then give them what they want. So it was you remove their you remove their their organizing power. And then you remove their, their sort of incentive structure by, by giving them the, the segregation to sort of maintain the thing as it is. And for him, this, this compromise persisted. And in order, and the second you had, uh, but this was so unpopular that he was voted out of power. Afrikaans Nationalist Party gets in charge. They give, uh, they give full uh, franchise to all, of, uh, to all white, uh, white men in the country and then all white women. But now, of course, you can't extend the same to all of the black people in the country or else you're going to have a problem on your hands because you have a large swathe of illiterate people who share no cultural values with you and there's you know, deep animosity. That's going to be the end. So they decided, well, how do we deal with this? Well, we're going to have to segregate them and box them off. And, and so there's lots of forced removals and all kinds of nasty things that go on there. But even during this time, I mean, like uh, a lot of your, your, your readers will be into like the Bay Area rationalists and so on. A lot of your viewers, I assume. So you get like Jacob, uh, Jacob Falkovich, who does that blog, uh, put a number on it. Uh -huh. He did a really interesting article a while ago uh, where he was talking about um, inequality and how it's improperly measured. And so he does, this, uh, he does this really weird thing where he says, well, okay, well, I've now laid out all of my rational arguments. Let's assume that we, we really want equality. Um, let me describe a country for you. So he does this thing where he like describes this anonymous country that has like um, sort of a, a national sort of protectionist um, sort of quasi so uh, quasi socialist quasi capitalist kind of hybrid economy. Bootstraps all of these people together. You get declining um, inequality. You get uh, you get high growth rates. All of this kind of stuff. And then he says, "Aha! Now this country is actually South Africa under apartheid." He goes, "Well." Uh, so this is why you don't want equality. The interesting thing is like during this period of time, you see the, the, the wage increases amongst the black population are enormous. They, they really, really jump. Uh, whereas the white population's wage increases are good, but not stratospheric. Uh, and all of this ends in the late seventies because um, everyone decides they don't like this kind of autarkic economy that's growing um, to control the major mineral resources in the world that are necessary for a whole bunch of manufacture and so on. Um, so you start getting pressure both from the Soviets and the Americans to, um, to, to, to sort of open up 
in various different ways. And so you have the CIA reaching into townships in, I found this really weird document. So the United States Information Agency, it turns out, opened up a branch in Soweto in 1975. And they started showing anti-white propaganda films to black youths in Soweto. Like, you know, the film Roots. Um, yeah, yeah. So like completely like cartoonish historical inaccuracies about, you know, white and black, whatever. I mean, look, life in South Africa, black and white, the relations weren't good and it was pretty ugly, but it wasn't that. Um, but they, they, they went pretty hard at it. And the, the black consciousness movement, which actually is the movement behind the Soweto riots that really put up, put our racial struggle back on the map after the ANC was smashed in the sixties, that was actually started by the Anglican church, um, which, you know, well infiltrated by British intelligence. So it was started by British, um, pastors who, who then nurtured black, um, black youth into the into the movement until the black youth could take it over so a lot of this a lot of the movements in south africa were highly astroturfed and once the soviets saw that the western powers were having um were were having a good go at opening up south africa they decided to resurrect the anc and sent them on a tour to vietnam to learn how to butcher people more effectively um and and then you have the people's war which which starts crippling the economy. And so as the sanctions set in, you've got, you've got this decentralized war where the ANC targets every black liberation movement that's not in, in its umbrella. They infiltrate the, the UN High Commission of Refugees so that anyone who seeks refuge with the UN gets bundled into torture chambers in Tanzania. So they, they got rid of, uh, they, they sing the praises of Steve Biko now, but they were torturing and killing his followers. Um, and you know, so a lot of the big achievements during uh, during the apartheid era by groups like you know the PAC or, or the the Black Consciousness Movement, who the ANC were just eradicating, and they made like they made the country. The, the slogan was to make the country ungovernable. So these decentralized destabilization strategies. This is the stuff that was employed by Jacob Zuma in uh, and his followers uh, from the old military wing of the party in the destabilization we saw now in KZN and it caused so much trouble for the apartheid state that they actually drew up a new constitution in 1983 that gave the security cluster charge of their own budget which which ballooned to 50% of the government budget which is just it's absolutely extraordinary and the, the we went into high inflation in order to pay for all of this and to try and keep industries going while there was sanctions against us. And eventually it got to a point where it was unsustainable. And we just abolished all of the major apartheid laws in 1990. And uh, there was a continued struggle for another three years in order to force uh, incorporation of all territories into a centralized government. Um, and then there was a national election in 94. Um, and the rest and in between all of, And in between all of that, we built our own nuclear weapons. <laughs> well, yeah, well, we didn't really build our own nuclear weapons. We got handed the technology by the Israelis, uh, tested it out, and then the U.S. come knocking on our door and said, ah, ah no, none of that. And so it all went dormant very quickly. But, um, yeah, I, I, think, I, think one of the, uh, I think one of the things that we miss over here is that the, the, the structural pressures in South Africa, if you forget the international system um, for a minute, um, they're actually very similar to the ones that you see in the west as a whole and 
Uh, Nick Lan, and this is something I wrote in my last Substack article, which is obscenely long, and as um, as someone remarked, in need of a good editor. But the Nick Land, when you when you open Fang Newman, I read it like a, uh, I started reading it a few years ago. Like it struck me like the first article that he writes, like the opening fucking paragraph is him saying, you know, um, here's this thing, here's this thing happening. He's writing this in 1989, and he says, well. South Africa is like the world recapitulated in miniature. And he's, of course, echoing stuff that I was force-fed at university by far-left people. It's like, okay, South Africa's this settler colonial state. And the the idea of white South Africans as actually being any kind of indigenous or uh, or native population in any way is it's nonsense. They're actually, you know, they're an alien population. Um, and apartheid was really colonialism. And there's actually, you know, there's some truth to that. Um and Nick Land points this out. He said, like, the relationship between the white metropolis in South Africa and the black hinterlands is very much the same as the West and the rest. Um, you have this cheap source of labor that you, can exp- that, that you can use to undercut your own laborers. But you can only do so much of it um, at a time. You, I mean, you can't imagine, I don't know, the U.S. Um, and Western Europe saying, okay, open borders, no, lo- no labor controls in, I don't know, 1930, could you? You know, it's not possible. So um, they they started doing it since 1990 and increasingly deregulating the process since then. Um, and for similar reasons. Uh, but they've got an additional thing, which is that, you know, you have, you, you have an electoral pressure, which is left-wing parties rely on immigrant votes. So that didn't happen in South Africa. We had a different thing, whereas we had the international, um, the international uh, economy pressured us to do that. So we, 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 had, we, had, we had different pressures, but it's, the, the outcome is very, very similar. Um, and so now we're sitting where what a unified world government, if it were a democracy, would look like is kind of silly because the, 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 the incentives for any democratic government of any kind of liberal nature is you have to divide the sp- Spoils between the people who are voting for you, or they will pressure you to do so. And a, a lot of a lot of ANC electoral politics comes down to sort of violent petitions for um, for more material, you know, gibs, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it does seem like you know this is a this is a constant recipe everywhere. Um, you know, Eastern Europe is a bit different, but it feels like America is very much on the same on the same path. Um, and I think it's, it's to me, it does seem to be like something that's baked into the liberal cake um, in the sense that um, there is a certain egalitarian assumption at the at the core of liberalism. And if it doesn't fulfill its promises after, you know, X, X amount of iterations, you know, because the UK, the US had a certain form of separation, a certain form of apartheid at one point, uh, you know, apartheid was apartheid. Um, they were dissolved into the, the, the gray goo mass of liberalism and the experiment yeah. was run and, you know, people are collecting results and they're collecting stats. And now we have very visible stats. We have very, um, I know, politically charged stats. We have videos of things going wrong. Um, you know, everything's kind of very easily, dis- you know, you can disseminate narrative very easily now with, with, with everything and, and kind of manipulate people or at least show them things that, you know, we'll, we'll make them think a certain way. Um, and it's, it's very, I, I don't know. I don't really see how you turn back from that precipice. I feel like, you know, things, things are going to go South African 
in most places. <laughs> well, it's a, it's not a question of how do you turn back. I don't think we we should go back. Uh, not even a question of if we can. The, the the question now is what can we do about it? What solutions can we come up with? And that's pretty much where where I find myself today. I tell people I work in the solutions industry. Um, yeah. At Afri Forum and the Solidarität movement, we are working on solutions for the future, solutions for southern African problems, but problems that we see will arise as the world or the West rather South Africanizes. So what we're doing is we're pretty much building our own institutions, creating cohesive communities, setting up our own safety structures. These things have been going on for years now and they're already bearing fruit. But this is what you're going to have to do. And this is the lucky thing for people on the outside looking in is that they can learn lessons from South Africa and they can uh, they can learn from the solutions that we pioneer here today uh, without having to fall into the same pitfalls we have to, to, to learn some of these lessons. Now, the problem is a lot of people on the outside looking in, and I've said this on previous streams and interviews as well, is that on the left and the right, they look at South Africa and they only learn the lessons that they want to learn. But the problem is, or the reality is, they're going to have to learn lessons that they don't want to learn. And the big lesson that you need to learn from South Africa is that you're going to have to do it yourself. You're going to have to start small again. It's not going to be like in some uh, revolutionary fantasy where one day something clicks and then everyone rises up and you have this new uh, paradigm or dispensation. It's rather a very long and strenuous journey of laying brick by brick, some building something new again. And this is what we're doing, for example, at AfriForum. And through the solidarity movement, we're built rather than trying to retake the universities that have been completely captured and are antagonistic, if not malicious towards, uh, for example, Afrikaners, we're building our own universities. So we established Academia, which is our own private university. We've built a technical college called Salt Tech last year that already has a hundred students, a thousand students studying there. It's not like some abstract university or whatever we built a campus you can find the the video where i talk about it on my channel as well or you can just search saltic it's a it's one of the the biggest uh, civil society or communal accomplishments in the post 1994 era um and these are the type of solutions that we're coming up with Uh, we've already we already have a network of over 160 uh, neighborhood watches all across the country they're all in communication with each other they're all little nodes that give you information about what's going on but these aren't neighborhood watches that are being run by people that are incentivized by money they're not being paid to do it this is all through cultural and communal energy so as i said earlier that's the lesson or not the lesson that's the observation you get from south africa is that when the shit hits the fan people will fall back on their communities and if if those communities are not there are non-existent or weak that uh, that community or that person is not going to have a stand a very strong chance so what in south africa what we're seeing is this little mini culture war going on within the, uh, you could call it the conservative liberal alliance or the classically liberal and conservative alliance or reactionary alliance, whatever you want to call it, is this little culture war between individualism and communitarianism or communal thinking. So I fall and Afri Forum and Solidarity fall fully into the community orientated response where we don't think just 
trying liberal, doing liberalism right is going to save South Africa. Um, South Africa wasn't a leftist experiment. South Africa was a liberal experiment. Uh, our constitution in the 90s was lauded as by liberals, and I'm not talking about liberals in the American sense. I'm talking about classical liberals. Our constitution was lauded as the best document after the Bible that's ever been written. It's one of the best. It was called one of the best constitutions in the world. Now today, the narrative has shifted a bit. After all the shit that's happened since then, the narrative has shifted from the best constitution into in the world to no, it's a bit flawed. So, I mean, it gives you everything. It gives you property rights. It gives you individual rights. It's pretty much a, a liberal way dream with some little flaws, according to them. But that's the lesson from South Africa is that just doing liberalism right, real liberalism hasn't been tried is not the answer. That's not the lesson you need to learn from South Africa. The lesson you need to learn from South Africa is that you need to get your community organized. To put it very, very simply, you need to know the name of your neighbor. You need to know some people in your street. You need to be able to, if there's some, and that's what we saw. I mean, the best example of that was during the unrest, when the military and the police failed to protect South Africans, communities organically organized, blocked off their neighborhoods, had uh, searched cars, made sure that anyone entering wasn't a looter or had looted goods with them. They made sure their, their communities were secure. This wasn't something that was organized uh, from some higher place or by the government or anything. This was organic communities coming together, defending their property and their lives and their families. And this is the lesson that you're going to learn. When things get really bad, that's the type of organization that you're going to be have to do. And that's what we're doing, for example, at our organizations like Solidaritate and AfriForum is we're setting, we're building these networks, we're building this infrastructure so that communities, if things happen that are as bad as the unrest that we saw this year, people are ready, people can communicate, people know what to do. So it doesn't mean we're preppers, it doesn't mean we have like bunkers full of emergency provisions all over the place it just means we're setting up communication networks we're setting we're organizing we're making sure that people know in a crisis situation what do you do and who do you contact and that's what we're that's the big lessons that you can learn from south africa is that type of parallelism yeah i i completely agree with the with the vision of parallelism i think in a way, it might still be a little bit different to the countries in the West, because, you know, when you think about parallelism, for example, in um, in the U.S. context, uh, you don't necessarily have a weak state there. You have essentially a narco tyranny. Uh, and you you see that, you know, in, in many cases where there's a certain law for some people and a certain law for, for a different group of people. Um, and the state will come down on you if you try to like, you know, Waco style, Ruby Ridge style, uh, if, if you want to be really, um, you know, um, if you want to be very parallel and you make it in a, in a you know, you concentrate your efforts there. So um, I don't know, is, is there a, a similar version of a narco tyranny happening in, in South Africa or is it, uh, you know, is, is the state just, just weak? Well, <laughs> yeah, over, over to you, Rob. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's like well no your, your your version of an arco tyranny is just so much tamer than ours it's unbelievable I now mean, just before you start rob uh, <laughs> the best example of demonstrating this was i once tweeted an image of a, a riot that was going on a protest if you will of people in south africa taking pics and they are smashing a national highway and everyone was looking at it americans and people from the uk they were looking at this image of people with pics on the road and they're like are they fixing it what are they doing i'm like no they are actively dismantling the highway as a form of protest 
and it, and the authorities are allowing them to do it. The authorities, are, the police are standing there watching them. That's South Africa in a nutshell. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is this is definitely not something that's uh, that's been visible to me. I mean, I, I could imagine it, but is it is there is like active resistance? Because I mean, what what you hear here is uh, you know farm murders. That's kind of like the little bit of a, a trickle of of information about something that's close to anarcho tyranny, uh, but not yeah. not that much. I mean, I'm I'm curious, you know, what what yeah, essentially, what's going going on with that? Well, I mean, look, if you want to see real anarcho tyranny, if you want to see, I, for me, the most powerful demonstration of this is um, actually something that gets very little treatment over here as well, because look, the Afrikaners have um, have institutions that defend them, the colored people don't. So colored people, what's happening to them is that there's a Tibet, uh, there's a sort of Tibet style strategy to replace them in the Western Cape, where the ruling party pays Xhosa uh, speaking people from the Eastern Cape to come and move in in their neighborhoods and occupy land that's been earmarked for housing for them. Um, the other thing that they do um, is that they also have been funding and protecting for 10, for over 10 years now, they've been funding and protecting the Cape gangs. Now this gang system is responsible for over 50% of, well, actually, no, I've heard different estimates. I've seen someone say 26%. I've heard someone say 54%. Nah. But basically a big fat chunk of the homicides in the Western Cape. And in the, the big areas that are affected are colored areas. Now, these people are protected systematically by the ANC and the National Police Service. And this is the, 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 level, of, the level of egregious nonsense that, that uh, the colored population have to deal with from black people is extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. And it's to the point where um, it's to the point where you know police officers who try and push back on this, they don't get protection, they don't get help, they don't get anything from uh, from from the national police. So it's it, it's really quite brutal. And they are two thirds of this this province uh, ethnically, um, but according to the last census, the two thirds of the population. But they get no, they are allocated nine percent of the jobs according to the affirmative action pro protocol. It's it really is brutal. If you want to talk about racial oppression, the colored people are really screwed. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, so I mean, anarcho tyranny it means that the government is literally supporting um, criminal elements in the in the country in order to destabilize law and order where they don't govern. And it's an extension of a generalized strategy that they adopted when they were outside the government which is make the country ungovernable. And in the current dispensation, what it means is you make areas outside of your control ungovernable. So it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. But if you want to see how they do power competition, it's, you'll have these mass violent protests all over the country constantly, all the time. It's, there's no moment where there's not a violent protest going on in the country anyway. It's all the time. This is just normal politics. And it's not dealt with by the police unless the ANC don't like it. And uh, you can see a good example of, the, of something that the ANC doesn't like in the Marikana massacre in 20, was it 2014, 2013, 2012. So, yeah, in 2012. Uh, just for, for some context there, Robert, when you say that the amount of protest or, or rioting in South Africa, uh, it's a bit old stat, but it's pretty much, it hasn't changed a lot. Uh, in 2014, there were nearly 30 riots or protests a day in, across South Africa. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty normal. Yeah. And uh, you got to understand, like, if you want to contest local elections in South Africa, like around the same time, there was a big one in uh, the, the capital in Pretoria. Um, but you'll have to Google it under the decolonized name Chwane, because that's the municipality's name. Uh, so it, the the riots in Chwane for the for the uh, for the mayoral candidacy, um, they basically two different factions faced off, and one of them burnt all of the buses and all of the bus shelters and the pro- uh, and the, and the public infrastructure, while demanding service delivery in the transport sector. Um, that's that's South Africa in a nutshell, and I mean, like, it, it, it's it's absolutely nuts. And the, the, the press always defends them and says, well, you know, oh, the, this is just a spontaneous outburst of the people's frustrations with poverty. And the people who need to pay for this are the white people who've been benefiting from apartheid. And the, the level of distortion is unbelievable. We've had, I mean, the university I come from, the vice chancellor promotes, uh, uh, promotes a thesis which got the rubber st- got the stamp of approval. They call for uh, call for genocide against white people. This is just a reasonable discussion of the options available for us for dealing with the settler colonial problem. Yeah. Understand? Or if you had, we, the, we wouldn't, or if, you know, or you you have the the ANC going when that uh, Suleimani of uh, I think Iran was uh, assassinated by the or killed by the United States. You had the ANC uh, chanting outside the American embassy, "One American, one bullet." Now, that is a variation on a chant that you hear in a lot of protest action in South Africa, one settler, one bullet. Now, a settler is yep. just a euphemism for a white South African or a white person. Yep. And uh, you get, for example, when that, there was a very high-profile farm murder last year of uh, a young man called Brendan Horner, and there was in a town called Senecal. And this was a 21 or 22-year-old man that was hanged on a pole. And when that court case started in that small town, the EFF, the third largest party in the country, descended on that town and uh, they sang outside the court case, the courtroom where the farm murder, murderers or the accused are inside and the family of the murdered uh, farmer are inside. They stood outside and they sang, kill the boer, kill the farmer. Uh, and this is the type of rhetoric that you see in South Africa. And this is, this is the type of party, the EFF, that go to a court case where the parents of the murdered 21-year-old farmer that was hanged on a pole are sitting inside the courthouse and they're standing outside singing, kill the boer, kill the farmer. And then you have these politicians that lead this party getting all this fanfare from the West. They, I mean, Trevor Noah took a selfie with Julius Malema for goodness sake. Uh, this is the type of this is the type of treatment they get. They now they say, oh, the big problem in South Africa is all this white racism. But you have these political parties that sing, kill the boer, kill the farmer. They say we we're going to, and this is a direct quote, cut the throats of whiteness. It's pretty much you take critical race theory and you give it to a a, a horde of people that genuinely want to kill the, their own compatriots in their country. And I'm saying, and this is very important to understand is that I'm not talking about black South Africans. I'm talking about the people that support this type of party. And even though they're not a majority party in South Africa, they still have millions of support. And these are people that find nothing wrong with going to a court uh, court case and singing uh, that type of song. That's why my colleague, uh, if you are interested in the, the topic of farm murders in South Africa and you want to get the facts, my colleague Adams Roots actually wrote this book called Kill the Boer, uh, referencing that song. Um, and this is an extensive book on just the farm murder phenomenon in South Africa, all the stats uh, from for over a few decades and what's going on. And the thing is, 
this is what's so frustrating is that you get, for example, during apartheid, you get all this international pressure on South Africa for human rights violations and what's going on in South Africa. But then when you have an ANC government post-1994 that during the pandemic refused to give aid or relief to businesses that are white-owned, then you hear nothing. Then it's fine. Then it's just, no, let them do their thing. They are very progressive. They, they've been oppressed for so long. It's their turn to be a little bit cruel. But that's the type of rhetoric that we have to deal with. And then you, for example, now that we're on the topic of farm murders, then you get this situation where 80-year-old women or 90-year-old grandmothers and fathers are drilled through their feet with a power drill or their fingers are cut off or a garden fork is pushed through their chest. And then people say, oh, man, it's just a conspiracy theory. Why are you so, uh, so worked up about it? And this is what people don't understand. I've had, uh, uh, I've had to hear from people that there's a farm, they, uh, people that I know that I heard uh, over a voice note that there's just been a, a farm murder uh, next to them. And then I have to go through all that emotion of, are they going to be safe? Are they going to be fine? There's been attacks. Uh, my uh, girlfriend's uh, mother lives on a plot uh, outside of town. Uh, so it's pretty much like a rural part of this, the country. And there were people trying to break into their plots. And the, I have to console my girlfriend over the phone because she's crying. She is pretty much convinced her mother is going to die that night. And then I have to look these progressives in the eye and they, or they look me in the eye and they tell me you're overreacting and you're a propagandist. Well, they can go fucking burn in hell, man. This is, that's the type of, that's the type of stuff that we have to deal with. And it's all just ideological possession. It's straight. It's absolutely demonic. It's possession is the right word. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I, I think one of the worst things that happened to us in t- uh, was actually Lauren Southern. Because you know that documentary she made, I can't remember what it was called, but she came to South Africa and she's, oh, there's a genocide against white people. And the problem with that is that because she's now cried wolf, nobody will take us seriously. And you have, an, you have organizations in this country like, you know, they campaign against the myth of white genocide funded by foreign organizations. And the, it's, it, it, it's just, it's this constant ridiculous sort of witch hunt for anyone who might criticize um, the asymmetric treatment of race relations in South Africa. You, you can't, you can't discuss anything serious. You can't discuss the fact that they burn, uh, burn women suspected of being witches alive in rural parts of the country. You can't discuss the fact that, um, you know, uh, a, a plurality of women in South Africa have become prostitutes because of, uh, because of the combination of, um, liberalism, um, paganism, and urbanization. You can't discuss the. Um, ooh, you can't discuss the prevalence of cannibalism in South Africa. Twenty-five percent of the black population has first-hand experience with human bodies being sold for medicine. So, like the the absolute depravity of this country is beyond what is allowed to be discussed in any circumstances. And the, the, you know, to call it barbaric immediately puts you in the category of being a racist. But I mean, what else can you possibly describe this country as? You have, you have 20 odd thousand murders a year in a country that is the same size demographically as, I don't know, France. We had France at 20,000 well, murders a year. What the? Just to put that into know? more perspective, that's 57 per day. So that's more than two per hour. Yeah, I think I, I saw a stat. Um, it wasn't like a, one million homicides since 1994. Well, that's, half a million. Yeah, they, no, it's, half, a yeah, million. It's half a million. 
It's half a million, yeah. It's it's pretty good. It's pretty impressive still, but it's uh. Yeah, we're winning. Yeah. We're winning gold medals in all the wrong categories. Yeah, I mean, look, I live in I live in a really reason. I live in one of the few sort of like nice parts of the country. Um, uh, in terms of uh, crime rates, I don't have burglar bars in my window. I don't have um. You know, I don't have all of these like hairy defense systems that the rest of the country. But I go over to visit uh, visit my colleagues up in Pretoria, and you don't just have like a security compound. You have another security fence system around the little chalet that they put you in, and then they have a locked uh, they have locked doors, and then they have another special system of security gates that separate your bedroom from the rest of the house. Yeah, so it's South like these multiple layers the, uh... of security. Yeah, I'm not going to say the word because it might uh, get your channel in trouble, but it's R-A-P-E gates. That's what we call them. It's a gate in the middle of the house that separates the living rooms from the rest of the house. And Robert, what Robert's talking about is actually when he came to visit us here up in Gauteng, uh, the province where I live in Pretoria. So uh, I'm living in a province where the future has already happened. Rob is living in the Western Cape, a province where the future is yet to happen. So yeah. what, uh, what he came to witness here was pretty much how uh, the Northerners live. And it's definitely an experience. I mean, uh, just here next to me is some of the thickest burglar bars you'll ever see in your life. And yeah, uh, like I, want, the, I wanted to reality. pop down to the corner shop. I wanted to pop down the corner shop to have a snack because it's literally around the corner. It's like, you know, 50 meters from the front gate of the, of the compound. And I said, oh, I'm just going to pop down and get like a pie or something like that. And Aaron says to me, no, I'm going to drive you. You're not going. <laughs> oh, I mean, I can't. I mean, I'm, I've been tasked with keeping this man safe. And now he goes around <laughs> the corner uh, in this part of town where oh, we're living in. And I have a death on my hands or a murder. That's, uh, that's not going to happen. Oh my lord! Yeah, I, but, mean, I mean, like I... It, it happened really quickly because when I was a teenager living in Johannesburg, it's just I, it's it's bloody violent. I, I I lived in a, like a nice little leafy suburb, but it was, you know, there were uh, two streets over from like the biggest township in the city is Alexandria. But I used to walk to my friend's house even then, you know, and that was what fifteen years ago. But now it's like you know, just everywhere is like a war zone. You know. You don't trust anywhere. There's, there's, there are no safe places to go anywhere north of, you know, the early funds of feed. So, yeah, the the big problem with South Africa, and specifically for people like uh, like me that work for Afri Forum, but also Rob that tries to get the truth out there, is the fact that unfortunately South African issues have been incorporated into the American cultural world. So yeah. while we're trying, and I told you this off air, while we're trying to get the truth out there, it's not just that we're dealing with uh, propaganda from one side, we're dealing with propaganda from all sides. Everyone is invested either in South Africa's failure or in South Africa's glorious victory. And it's, it's very frustrating because on the one hand, you have one faction saying everything is fine, there's nothing wrong. Or as our own president said, there are no murdering of white farmers in South Africa, close quote. You have the other side that's looking at South Africa and saying, yeah, well, white people are being murdered, like exterminated and they're being genocided, which is not true either. So it's really difficult to be in this position where you're dealing not just with propaganda from one side, but from everywhere. And it gets really, really foggy and murky. And I mean, this is maybe an understatement to call it foggy and murky. It becomes almost like 
water that's been filled with ink. It's like swimming in ink and trying to figure out where you are. That's why I told you I intro my uh, podcast with, or my channel, all my videos with greetings from the dark continent because information-wise, South Africa is still very much a dark continent. People laugh at our ancestors for thinking that they are like monsters walking around in South Africa and like huge giants and everything. But they believe just as absurd things about South Africa and Africa today. They just don't know it. They think it's true and they believe in exactly as our ancestors believed they were like monsters walking around and giants walking around in South Africa. The same type of lies and propaganda people are believing today. They just think it's true and now they've transcended that primitive way of, uh, oh, we don't understand this continent. We don't know what's going on. It's just that, no, you're just believing new myths that have been created. I mean, the biggest myth uh, in South Africa is that origin myth that we're being forced down or it's being forced down everyone's throat that South Africa was this blissful garden of Eden and then Jan van Riebeek uh, put his boot down on the Cape white sand and as soon as his boot hit that sand it South Africa fell and it became this just dystopia horrific nightmare of murder and rape and uh, crime now there is a bit of truth in that myth, though. Now, this is the critical race theory myth, the origin myth, a lot of heavy plagiarism from the Bible, but we'll stay, uh, stay away from that. So there is a little bit of truth here, and this might be a bit controversial for people hearing me say that, but to hear me out. So what they're actually trying to describe here, I'm convinced, is if you look at South Africa urbanizing and westernizing, sometimes kicking and screaming, you see the destruction of communities and culture. You see people severed from their roots and from their traditions. You see the, the destruction of the communal existence in South Africa and a lot of uh, cultural uh, bedrock and a lot of cultural uh, touchstones are destroyed. Now you have this rootless people that are moved around the country for cheap labor, uh, sometimes forcefully moved, sometimes they willfully move uh, after the job opportunities, and they go live in slums in the urbanized centers where there's no culture, there's no community, everyone is hostile towards them, and it's just this absolute chaos, it's anarchy. Now, you take that situation and you look at, for example, that myth that South Africa was this paradise and then it was lost. Well, what was actually lost was this everything made sense in terms of what South Africa was, how those tribes and communities operated in South Africa, how brutal or how immoral it might have been. To them, it made sense. To them, it was this is how things are done. This is how it's always been. They had their traditions. They had their communities. They had their uh, cultures. They had their own idea of history. And then South Africa was westernized and modernized, kicking and screaming. Now, there are a lot of benefits and material benefits come from that, but a lot of negative stuff comes from it as well. A lot of the corruption and crime that we see in South Africa sprouts from that disconnect, that severing of the traditional life in South Africa, the severing of community and just bunching people into these city centers. I think South Africa is one of the fastest urbanizing or biggest urbanizing countries in the world. I think 40% of our population live in the eight main population centers of the country. So you've got this vast rural land that's pretty much sparsely inhabited. And then you have these clogged, massive urban centers that are just a mismatch and a mixture of everything. There's no real cohesion culturally there. There's just everyone's there for utilitarian reasons, like I'm here to work, I'm here to earn money, I need to send money back to my family in the rural parts of South Africa. So just to close off maybe there, in conclusion, 
there is a little grain of truth, I think, in this myth that South Africa was this paradise and then destroyed. It's not what they think it is. These people that peddle this myth think it's because, oh, white people are evil and tried to turn South Africa or made South Africa evil. The actual nuance or the more abstract thing here is actually that it, it disrupted an order that didn't really need disrupting. It's this that liberal imperialism of, as if only you were liberal individualists like us, then you'd be happy. It's that idea of if only you were like us, if only the whole world was liberal individual, individualists, then they'd be happy. They'd have all this material wealth. Their GDP graph would go up and everyone would be happy. But the cost of that is you sever these traditional ties, these community ties, and you create false identities like the South African identity. I mean, South Africa is being reduced to just an economic block. You live in South Africa, you support the rugby team, the Springboks, you like to braai, which is just our version of barbecue, and you paint a South African flag on your cheek, and that's your identity. But it's so hollow and false and empty. It's building a, found, a house without a foundation. You're building it on sand. And then when that falls apart, a lot of the symptoms are what you're seeing here. The, the crumbling of communities is pretty much one of the big factors that led to the crime epidemic that you have in South Africa. And a big factor there is the destruction of the family. South Africa, and this is something Rob has done extensive reading and research on, is the destruction of the family in South Africa. And uh, just children out of wedlock, uh, 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 what, what is that, transactional marriages? This is something that might make your your western yeah. mind a bit you might be yeah, so a bit unorthodox so they have so, so the 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 academics is studying this use words like which is basically having sex for money and it's it's so prevalent you get like you depending on uh, which study you go to you engage in transnational sex 15 percent. that's that's the most conservative number i've ever found i've i found i was going up to 60 percent um and you know it's like you know like what's going on and in my opinion this is sort of like liberalism uh, uh, sort of reaches different interacting with it. So with a Christian substrate, you get serial monogamy, but with, um, you know, and lots of sleeping around and so on. But with, uh, with African paganism, you have this, their sort of traditional marriage rituals is based around a bride price rather than, um, uh, rather than dowry. And they, and, you know, and so women are sort of, there's a degree to which they're treated as property um, in, in, in the degenerate form of this practice. And what this ends up with is you get this thing in nowadays you call them blessers. So you get guys who will sort of be the um, financial patron of a woman in order to uh, for sexual services, and that because this is such a this is an extremely like prevalent sort of phenomenon. Um, it, you know, it's, and and because the the liberal sort of injunction this is you know you know shame on anyone who thinks it's shameful it creates a big problem because you can't, you can't impose any sort of restrictions on sexual behavior. And the result is that you have 60 to 70% of the population doesn't know who their father is. It's like, it's insane. This is not an exaggeration. Yeah, it's not, no, it's not an exaggeration, but I mean, um, the, the, I think, I mean, but this is kind of stuff that everyone in the West will know about in terms of like the, the, the general trajectories. It's just like a little bit sort of harsher and nastier in South Africa. And I think, I think I think one of the more interesting things is in terms of you know well what's the real flaw here and I think 
Uh, I was listening to uh, your interview with Curtis Yarvin from a few weeks ago. And you were saying, um, I, I, I just, it just struck me that he thinks he, he shares a particular sort of flaw with, the, with a lot of liberals, which is that you think that there can be sort of programmatic uh, solutions to political problems so that you can sort of like, Oh, well, you know, if you just structure the permissions uh, in, in, in the political structure in the right way, then everything will be fixed. And that's oh, it's just some it's bad just code. Sort of, yeah, yeah, it's just some bad code. And there's a very sort of program that's sort of a take. I mean, like, I, I don't want to tangle with him on any sort of like historical specifics, but I think one of the things where he goes, oh, well, you know, just duck out of politics and become like the Amish. Um, as long as you don't vote, then no one cares about you. I mean, like, the problem is that if you've got actual sort of, the, the reason that the Amish can be not looked at is because they're not actually a force in society. But I look at them in, look at the birth rates of the Amish in Canada, for example, where 40% of the recent growth in population is down to the Amish just, you know, doing it the natural way. And you think, like, if, if this population reaches a certain critical threshold, then people are going to start to start to want to, to you know, hem them in, or they're going to feel hemmed in because their chosen way of life is not sustainable uh, with the population density. So you're going to have natural clashes that emerge eventually, regardless of how you how sort of isolated you are. And if I look at the the the, the population groups that I intersect with, because I I'm both English and Afrikaans in my heritage, and and so I've got this big extended family that's you know part of both communities and the thing is you can't just not vote you're going to sit there and have the anc come in and they'll say oh well they don't want to bother us yeah but on the other hand you have skyrocketing um crime and then your your libertarian you know market solution will be oh well just you know get private security yeah okay then what if the government wants to confiscate all your guns like our government did they they actually wanted to make it illegal to own a firearm for the purposes of self-defense specifically I mean, this is in a country where it's basically anyone can get an illegal firearm if they want with five minutes notice. I could walk down to the taxi rank, ask a series of questions, and eventually someone will sell me a fucking firearm. But it, it's the, I mean, like, I, I, I know a guy down the bar who deals, deals guns for crying out loud. I mean, the, you know, the, the and, and this is a nice neighborhood. So the, the level of, the, the level of detachment you have to have here in order to think that if you just don't vote and you don't participate politically, that people are going to look the other way. You know, the majority of the population, they're the only elites that they have access to to defend their interests are sort of, you know, homicidally opposed to the interests of the minorities. So what are you going to do? You can't not be political in this environment. And so this is kind of a problem you have not only with Curtis Yarvin, but with liberals in general. I think, well, look, if you get the right legal framework in place, well, the reality is that if you're in power, you enforce the law selectively, like every country in the world. The law is always enforced selectively. The law is there for solving problems when you, um, A, can't solve it through informal political means, and B, don't want to kill people over it. So it's it it the law is for solving this particular middle ground where you can't uh, where you can't solve it through, you can't solve it through bribery and massacres too costly. So not every country sits in that lovely little golden mean where they don't want to go to war, bribe the shit out of everyone, um, and it requires a firm cultural belief in the rule of law, which just doesn't exist everywhere in the world. 
Um, uh, you ask anyone who's worked long ter- long term in China. I mean, I have a I have a very sort of bright f- um, fellow I knew in, in in the Netherlands who worked in China for a long time. He's fluent in Mandarin. Um, you know, he studied China. He's got like published articles, all that stuff. And he says, when you work there, the the, the company culture is like, um, you know boss will steal part of your salary but it's okay because you just steal laptops and equipment from the company and everyone just goes well that's just how business is done and you go okay well okay that's mind mind bending but you know it seems to get on okay where's the rule of law there well there isn't one you know it's it's all of this it's all a, a, a big jungle of you know incomprehensible sort of thieving relationships the we have this idea that you know the the law is an explicit thing that we can all trust and we can all see in front of you and it's sort of like there's a common sense uh way of interpreting it but i mean increasingly that's eroding even in the western world as as the as, as the institutions are gone and all of the basic methods of trust and common norms i mean peter hitchens is probably the best guy to outline this for for, for the english population i think but um uh yeah, if you think you know, you're living in a low trust, if you think you're living in a low trust society now, uh, you are living in bliss uh, compared to what we live in. Yeah, but yeah. my basic point is really just my basic point is really just you, you can't you can't like just some dis- design an institution and 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 hope it'll get like institutions have to reflect like stable conditions that are really like based in shared yeah. values in a community. Well, they're not going to work. I mean. Yeah, I think you know, you know like to, this is... to take the you know to take kind of the the, the Yarvin mantle and you know speak in his name though <laughs> I'm sure he'd probably disagree <laughs> with me. Um, I I can imagine his perspective is as some as someone who is almost kind of the quintessential atomized individual. He's kind of transcended atomization up. He's he's on the other side of it, so he kind of can see. You know, he has ultimate exit. You know, he's a man of means. He's probably, you know, got got enough money. He, he's not yeah. tied culturally to any place. You know, I'm sure he's he's lived in many places. He's not it's particularly American either. So he's got ultimate exit. So whenever whenever there's a peaceful, you know, patch of land anywhere in this world, you know, I'm, I'm sure Curtis Yarvin, if he has a good internet connection, Skylink or whatever that's called, Starlink, uh, he'll be he'll be fine there. He can always resettle. You know, but uh, I don't think he can see the perspective of someone who would fight for their patch of land who is culturally connected to a certain place uh because that's kind of a foreign perspective for someone like that you know yeah i mean the real the real challenge is is keeping is keeping actually a native elite to actually stick around because thing is there's a soft exit that everyone can engage in which is you move to a nicer neighborhood you move to a better country but i mean the thing is if you if you can observe the institutional patterns and the, the 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 telos that's built into this whole system it's that you know, doing this where you're constantly retreating from neighborhoods that have been captured by chaos and entropy is the entropy just follows you. You have to actually, um, I just keep thinking of the, the, that character in the wire, the deacon who's trying to like clear up Baltimore of, of heroin addicts. And, and, and one of the detectives is saying to him, you know, it's like, well, why, why do you bother? Why don't you just give up? And he says, you know, like doing good at the best of times is sweeping leaves on a windy day. And if you if you don't want to at least put a little bit of elbow grease behind it, then you know you're like, well, I'm just going to abandon my house because there's too many leaves on the front stoop, which is like 
I think there's yeah, there's is... a logic of of not you know charging a a machine gun nest uh, you know which which can happen you know if you're kind of like on your own just you know trying to trying to be edgy. Um, I don't think there's a good argument to, to to say okay you know you shouldn't do anything, but also you shouldn't necessarily be reckless. Though I do I do think Yarvin thinks that almost anything is reckless in this well, context. Yeah, that's kind of the you. problem is that the the recklessness. The, yeah. Look, the thing is, the recklessness is a result of people not having actual options around them, you know, and those options are provided by, you know, creative leader like individuals, or even just sort of middlemen types who can actually just get a modicum of reasonable stuff done. Um, but they all have to share the same values and have the same idea of what they're building. And when they provide an option, like where nonviolent work can be done for for a practical purpose, then the guys who would usually, you know, freak out and pull out their machine guns and go and do something silly, um, they'll go, okay, well, we don't have to do that. That can be a backstop option for like a million years down the line. And we can do all of this difficult, um, you know, work of, you know, sort of basic level neighborhood security and like sharing resource to build institutions and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it, it's sort of the lack of a local elite. And for South Africa, it's very acute because we have a massive brain drain people are buggering off to Australia and England and New Zealand, wherever, usually the big Anglophone countries. And kind of the reality is that they're saying, okay, well, to have a, like a neater street and buses that arrive on time, we're going to go and live amongst these uh, sort of like diffident, isolated nihilists who are okay with the government intruding in their lives in any way, shape or form with no resistance and will gladly rat you out to the secret police if you're not exactly the right shape of, uh, of state conformist. Um, and then there's all of that weird transgender stuff that comes with the first world that I don't have to worry about my kids too much unless they get stuck into a weird internet chat room. But like, um, that's something I don't in South worry, Africa. Yeah. That's something in South Africa that uh, people like me and Rob we confront a lot, specifically when we go on foreign podcasts and shows. Is we always get the the question of why don't you just immigrate, bro? And I mean, Rob is the complete inverse. He left South Africa and he came back to the shithole. So um, no, I left uh, the Netherlands and came back to South Africa. You mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you left uh, left the Netherlands and came back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't regret it because look, the Netherlands, the one thing that you get from living in a country like that, I mean, like when I left South Africa to do my master's there, um, I was leaving a situation where uh, I, was at, I was at the University of Cape Town and I'd started out as a communist, right? So my, my vibe was all, you know, all of this like progressive, like we're all heading towards like, you know, democratized economy and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the the there was a major cultural revolution that broke out in 2015 of which i was a small well insignificant part really i was but but i got to see it unfold right in front of me from the very beginning and um the, the reality of the roads must fall campaign is that it blossomed into it was the start of the entire iconoclasm movement uh, that hit the western world i mean in, within a Toppling couple of, of months, statues was pioneered uh, here yeah, no, because the, the 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 lefties in the West, the they they monitor South Africa a lot, and it's the the, the Rhodes Scholarship Network is connected to my my alma mater. So there's a lot of that, and it it got quite nasty. I mean, they they burn security guards alive. They're burning. Uh, they burn um, you know paintings, books, all kinds of crazy stuff. Chasing staff around buckwhips and and clubs and. 
just absolutely absolute insanity i mean everyone knows evergreen and i i a lot of the psychological stuff that i hear from uh benjamin boys like if you can just turn that up to 11 and give everyone petrol bombs and um and buckworps um, and add some genocidal flair it'll it'll be more or less the same thing um but I left that environment with with absolute paranoia because there's this idea in South Africa uh, of the Swat Kafar or the Black Peril, which was a propaganda effort by the apartheid government, like in the old days. And so, if you if you're afraid of black nationalist violence, you're guilty of Swat Kafar. You're spreading sort of you know black propaganda against you know the poor innocent Africans. So when I started finding problems with my fellow students saying you know that that you know genocide is the answer. I was calling, you know, then I was crying Swat Kafar. And at the time I was still a communist. Like I was still very, you know. So I, I leave South Africa in, in kind of a in kind of a stunned state where I'm I'm in a state of paranoia where everyone I've ever met in university who was friends with me, more or less, with very few exceptions, it turned from, you know, bosom buddies into, you know, vile cobras who, uh, who scream bloody blue murder when I cross them in the street. Um, you know, people who are joining paramilitary training camps and threatening my family for shits and giggles, you know? And um, so when I go to the Netherlands, you know, immediately this whole background stress level where, you know, all of the stuff you learn, like when, when you walk down a street, are you going to get mugged? If I, if I go to a class, am I going to get harassed or attacked by my classmates or whatever? All of that goes. And like the first thing that happened in the Netherlands was, I had, uh, I had a couple of security salesmen come to my house and they said, like, selling, like, alarm systems for your house. And they said, did you know in the last year in Bergen-op-Zone, there were 13 burglaries? You really need our system. And I just, I fell over laughing. I mean, I couldn't imagine. I live in a town of the same size. We have nine policemen per shift for this whole, uh, for this whole district. And, like, the, the police don't prosecute anything. Like, a break-in happens on a daily basis on any street, like there'll be one or two break-ins every, um, every day on every street or attempted break-ins. shall I say it's like petty, petty crime, but it's like, it's still a problem. But I mean, the, this is, this is the thing is you, you learn to appreciate and go and say, well, it doesn't have to be like this. This horrific situation we have where trains are burnt, nothing happens on time, nothing functions, everyone's stealing uh, nobody trusts one another. Everyone hates one another. Everyone's dying. And, of from various things you know diseases running rampant and so on you look at this and you 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 you, you internalize on a deeper level than rational you internalize that it doesn't have to be that way and i think that's the thing that almost no one in south africa gets is is that sort of learned helplessness where you say well you know okay i'm it's like a sexual abuse victim that's learned to um that's learned to believe that they they deserve what they're getting you know, like, okay, this is just how it is. And the thing and is when... It's hard to shock people out of that. Yeah. And uh, when we get asked that question of why don't you just immigrate to a different country, um, something that it, it's very difficult to explain. But the best, the best phrase that really explains it is that the, the dust in Africa gets into your veins and into your blood. And then it kind of compels you to stay here. Like that, yeah. um, I mean, my family has been here in South Africa since 1688 for nine generations. My family has been in Southern Africa longer than the U.S. has been a country. And 
I've been to the Netherlands, I've been to France, I've visited Europe and the countries of my ancestors and I don't feel at home there. It doesn't feel like my home. It doesn't feel like where I belong there. Now, I'm definitely not going to immigrate. I've, re- I've written extensively on why I won't immigrate and why I think people need to think very hard about it. But in the end, why would I want to immigrate to, the, to a country like America or Australia or anywhere in the Anglo world immigrating to an empire that's in decline where my children will be godless and my children will pretty much just end up as the worst examples of any type of degeneracy that you can imagine why would i why would i immigrate to the the rotting carcass of a of a dying empire why would i then just go live there so that my children can can sustain themselves on this rotting carcass rather than living in a country where it is admittedly very dangerous but where i can live freely and where my culture survives and my children know their heritage they know where they come from they have a strong sense of community and identity and they're surrounded by people that they trust in their community in their tribe if you will and that was the funniest thing that i've i think i've been told by someone in i think i think it was an american that told me once on on twitter they said why don't all you Boers in South Africa just immigrate to America and come join your people? And that use of your people, I found absolutely hilarious because you're not my people. My people are Afrikaners. My people are Boers. My people aren't some global white brotherhood. Then in that case, you're just a, a universalist of a different flavor. For me, the, the big thing is I want my community to survive. I want my language to survive and I want my culture to be preserved. This is what I'm fighting for. And in South Africa, the Afrikaners and the Boers don't have a, a future in Africa, the continent that we named ourselves after, the Afrikaners, then uh, we don't have a future. Our children, our offspring that move to, if you immigrate to Australia or New Zealand or England or America, their children will become Americans, Canadians, Australians, and New Zealanders. They won't see themselves as Afrikaners or Boers anymore. Then my culture will die and my language will die and my heritage will meet a dead end. Now, a lot of people don't understand this, specifically more to the race and race nationalist side. They say, well, we just need to preserve the white race. I'm like, no, I want my culture preserved. I want my people, my tribe to survive not some universalist beast that you've created that doesn't really exist i mean where was this global white brotherhood when uh, the anglos were putting Boers in concentration camps and framing them as uh, less than human i mean this is this is basic stuff and it's something that the west is going to have to grapple with because a lot of countries in the anglosphere don't have this strong sense of community and culture that the Afrikaners have, for example. If you ask them what's your culture, they're going to struggle to answer you. I can answer you within a split second what my culture and my community is and who my people and my tribe are. They don't have that. So, of course, when things get really tough and things start falling apart and they have to start uh, trying to create some cohesive community again and create some idea of who their people are the only thing they can fall back on is race unfortunately that's that's the situation that america and the anglosphere is sitting in because they have they weren't the anglosphere and america or anglo the anglo-american world wasn't killed by some outside force that's conniving to destroy them it committed suicide or it's in this in the in the process of committing suicide the west severed its own roots deliberately because we thought we were now suddenly enlightened and past all these primitive things like culture and community and tradition and uh, all that. 
but the in the end we're slowly learning that no um, maybe our ancestors weren't these absolute savages and idiots that we thought they were maybe what uh, maybe uh, that old saying is right that tradition and culture is solutions to problems that we forgot we had uh, so that's the the big lesson that we're learning and when people ask me why don't you just immigrate i mean then i respond with that same type of thing what i'm doing here in south africa is i'm living a meaningful life i'm a solution pioneer i'm working on solutions for the future for not just my own people but for all the communities around me and I'd rather live that life. And even though it's dangerous, um, I'm living a fulfilled life that every day I'm glad to go to work. I'm glad. I'm very happy with what I'm doing rather than, I mean, with my qualifications, if I were to immigrate, I'd just be working some dull corporate job somewhere in America or the UK. Now mm -hmm. I'm pretty much working in the solutions industry, like I said, and it's very fulfilling. <laughs> you know, I, still get, I still get these little like notifications on LinkedIn for like, oh, do you want to become like a... Um, a logistic medewerker in Eindhoven. You know, it's like, do you want to do like middle, middle you know, like you want to become a management, wage. like logistics? Yeah, like, you like I'm going to be like slave. a logistics manager. For like, like, yeah, do, do doing, you guys you know? um, think that, you know, the, the cohesion of, you know, the Boer and the, the Afrikaner um, is, is kind of precipitated by the fact that there is danger. There is, uh, you know, the, 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 the outside has always been a peril. You know, there's always been tribalism. It's inescapable. You're literally living among tribes uh, and you can, you could in a way, because there was always an external element uh, like, for example, in, in Western Europe, it's not really an external element. There's a European Union. Everything's gray goo uh, and it's very easy to dissolve. Uh, but it's not that easy to dissolve if you really need each other. So there's kind of like an inherent meaning in, in, in your tribe in a way that it, it just doesn't it's not relevant in, in even in Eastern Europe anymore, you know, except for maybe, I don't know, in Kosovo. But, you know, Romania doesn't have that either. Before you answer, Robert, just a quick little bit of trivia there that might help answer your question in in the Afrikaner culture and the Boer culture we have a very strong symbol called the lager so the lar the lager is pretty much where it's, it's where the expression comes from circling the wagon so on the great trek when the Boers trekked into the interior of, of southern Africa whenever they were in danger or under attack they circled the wagons into like a defensive uh, 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 formation and anyone inside was safe, anyone outside would pretty much be killed by the enemy. So it's very deeply ingrained into our cultural psyche that when things get tough and dangerous, you trek lar, you go into the lager and you will be, be safe there. So I think your observation is right on the money. Uh, Rob, your thoughts on this? Well, I think that, you know, there's, there's two traditional struggles that humanity has always faced. And that's, you know, you've got the struggle against nature and then you've got the struggle against other men. And, you know, the West have managed to forget both, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, it's like, oh, well, you know, we can, we, we entertain ridiculous ideas about sort of centrally planned green economies and nonsense like this. And, you know, universal basic income, open borders, global government, you know, the whole nine yards, um, because they figure, well, you know, there's no real natural limits to anything. You can just sort of do whatever. All you need to do is to get your politicians to agree with you. Um, or get the people to agree with you, whichever side of that fence you're standing on. Um, but the, the other one that they always forget about is, oh, well, you know, we don't have uh, Germans and French fighting each other in the streets anymore. So, you know, what is this national nonsense? There's no need for that. Um, 
and so all of these kind of things that that, that, that emerge when when there's real reasons to fight you know um those struggles are kind of part of each other because a struggle between man and man produces a struggle against nature because you have to get enough material means to defeat the other guy and vice versa because when when pickings get slim people start turning on each other and to forget either of these aspects of of life ends you up in a position where you're going to create the necessity for figuring it out um so you know but in south africa because there's always been sort of a lack of uh, there's never been a real pure moment of security um and there's never in in either of these dimensions everyone's really sort of there's sort of a harder edge to politics here and while you've got sort of a core uh, elite that are paras uh, mostly parasitic and um detached from reality um they they really only sustain themselves because of international support for the most part and you take that away and you watch I mean, like most most of the ordinary people in south africa are they believe in like the death penalty and they're very very reactionary traditionalist sort of perspective most of the, the countryside people um you, you can talk about broken families till you're blue in the face but the reality is that you know your average person if you pick on them um they're very very conservative like to the point where you're talking stuff that wouldn't be utterable a hundred years ago in the west and um you know the the, the the elite have nothing to do with your people on the ground they're sustained by institutions which are plugged into the international system i mean it's like yeah but like sustainable development goals i mean like what what has that got to do with reality what's that got to do with people's living on the ground you got um we've got uh, the 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 the, the the only opposition party in the country is also you know saying oh sustainable development gold as you read all of their policy designs it's like well they're just ripping pages from the united nations and that's the best we've got at the moment in terms of parties to vote for that have any real national level clout yeah it's dismal I mean, really that's that's kind of what what it's, i've seen and it's and, divorced I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't really have a have a i think the only reason you only way you can really bring them back to reality is if there's a major political crisis but you know, those don't come around every day. Yeah, I mean, anyone I've met from South Africa in in the West, because I used to live in London, and there are quite a quite a lot of South Africans there. Um, you know, whenever I ask, because I I was essentially curious, because you kind of you know, as I said, you know, you hear echoes of what's happening on the dark continent, but you know, it's not really clear. And you know, whenever I tried to ask us, you know, an interesting question, a spicy question the re- response is always just oh it's it's all racism you know whatever it, it, as, as as crazy and and you know incoherent as the response was it was like okay what's going on in south africa the racism is just ramping up you know just more and more racism and i was like okay well that's that's a terrible answer it doesn't make any sense yeah. but you know well if they're talking about the racism or the the institutionalized racism of the government having like race quotas in sport and in business and mandating that businesses be owned by a certain amount of every group like racial bean counting making uh, having mandated that the sports teams have to be rep- uh, demographically representative with hardline race quotas denying relief funds during a pandemic to businesses because they're white owned yeah then institutional racism in south africa is absolutely rampant yeah that was not the racism they were referring to yeah but like (laughs) look look left-wing and liberal south africans uh are all 
goddamn idiots and there's nothing worth getting out of them you're never going to get a, you're never going to get a drop of reality out of them they can, i mean i i say this as someone who used to be sitting on that side of the fence i mean it's like it's it's complete delusion and i mean look if you if you're of my if you're of my age or you know roughly my age or younger because i'm 30 now um the the the, the people that you you're going to be talking to have been sitting in uh basically a an indoctrination camp for their entire lives. And it's not just like, okay, well, the, the, the school teaches you this and the media teaches you this and, and this and the other. It's like you're an ethnic minority that in order to not get continually attacked with an unlimited amount of abuse, have to apologize for your existence. And people will internalize. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I run into, uh, I've run into white people who, when you discuss genocidal rhetoric, they'll say, well, maybe it's our turn. You know, like you don't you're not gonna have you're not gonna have a rational conversation and frankly if you meet uh if you meet uh if you, left-wing south africans in europe who fled south africa because of the conditions that their ideas create they're a dime a dozen you throw you throw a rock in a restaurant in 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 london you'll hit one and you know i suppose do me a favor and throw it fucking hard uh because they <laughs> deserve to be they deserve to get a slap in the face once in a while um yeah in south africa there's the a thing direct is, yeah there's a direct correlation between the means to immigrate and the farther left that your opinions are. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you, you, the, the, the people who, the people who left South Africa because they were afraid of the ANC left in the early nineties. So they're going to be old topics and you know, they, they're an older generation of people and their kids have already been indoctrinated, uh, been, been pushed through the, 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 the liberal institutions in the West. You're not going to get anything constructive there. The, the thing is, you know, and I just I don't know what uh, I don't know what to say about them. The, the worst problem about them is that they they help maintain the distorted image of the country that they've left behind. Because look, if you think South Africa is doing okay, all of the ideas that you you that they just the problem is this mental block is they they attribute it to something abstract like, like corruption. They'll say, well, it's corruption that's destroying the country. And you go, okay, fine. But you know why why would that why would our country be so viciously corrupt? Why isn't, I don't know, why isn't Australia uh, experienced that particular variety of corruption? You know, it's, well, it's because the, the population haven't been westernized. And so you're sitting with Western institutions that nobody believes in. None of the norms that build and ins- that structure the institutions are believed in. And the institutions that they could possibly hypothetically replace them with, the institutions that they proclaim to believe in, are basically either the Soviet Union or uh, tribal anarchy. And that doesn't work. It's, the, 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 there is no real hope here in South Africa in terms of uh, from the left. The only real solution is from people who are going to return to things that have actually allowed civilization to function, and that that will be that will be sort of very hardcore Christianity, and it will be um, sort of at least quasi Western institutions. Um, and it will be a very, very staunch, staunch and hard-edged law and order uh, sort of disposition um, that that doesn't that doesn't blanch the use of necessary violence, and that scares a lot of people because let's face it, it is extremely scary. You know, yeah. uh, the kind of things that will be required, the, the kind of the kind of use of violence that's required to to, to purge a country of, I mean, we're like even your tamest and most law abiding politicians have to sort of navigate around violent gangs. Um, you can't clean that stuff up without, without, uh, 
you know, a very big stick. And that's going to, that scares a lot of people because, you know, if you're brought up in a gated community here, you're part of like the white minority, you're, you come from a nice cushy, you know, environment, you don't like hurting people, you, you, you know, human rights, all of that kind of stuff. You're not faced with the, the way that ordinary people are brought up where it's really is kill or be killed. And it's, it, it's paradoxic. It, it's, it's, there's so many paradoxes to this, but the, the core of it is that you, the, the only mechanisms that can possibly generate elites cannot generate elites that are capable, that can touch reality because by touching reality, they endanger their capacity for sustaining themselves. Cause if you come up from like, I don't know, poor area, but like let's say a, a poor part of Cape town, like Kyalicha or Delft, by the time you, by the time you hit puberty, you will have been indoctrinated into a local gang and you have to do it or people like you run the chance of getting shot at on your way to school and i mean of course you're probably going to get shot at anyway because you know let's face it gangs are going to go to war with each other and then once you're in you're going to you're going to your biggest avenue for for getting any kind of you know payday is either extorting people um at gunpoint or trading drugs so you know it screws everyone like everyone is completely screwed and you have to have, it is really, really, really hard to either get someone who's got experience of that community to enter the elite or to get someone from the elite sectors of society to face that reality. It's it, crossing that bridge. is just, it's a nightmare. Um, yeah. And the, the Afrikaner communities are the, there's a reason they're the only ones who, who have any real insight. And that's because of their tie to the agricultural communities. Now, the the loss of uh that the, the loss of security that they face means that they're living on a frontier everywhere they're living on a frontier and they've all got feedback to the sort of the, the sort of foundational experience of everyone around us is trying to kill us and the people and then our the europeans and the africans <laughs> yeah and then our english-speaking neighbors are busy pushing us into the mouth of the crocodile so they don't get eaten first so the the that mentality that that's the 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 knowledge of how hard it is and struggling economically against a government that racially discriminates you against you and shuts you out of the the sort of commanding heights of the economy you know those two experiences that means that afrikaners are probably the only community as a whole who has stand a high chance of actually facing reality the others are not because either because they're denied education and their only means of advancement are through corruption or violent crime or because they're pampered little um, sort of uh, elite that live in gated communities. So yeah. it's, it's, it's very, very uh, hard. It's very, very it's hard a, to find ways out. <clears throat> a, a, a very disappointing reality that you guys are, are presenting here because uh, in a way uh, for the West, uh, a lot of people kind of on the dissident right are expecting, okay, you know, the elites will flip. You know, there's going to be a, a, a grand wave of red pills that will just, you know, shock them <laughs> into into reality, and no. they will see how, how bad the things are getting. But yeah, you know, let you... me just let me just uh, <laughs> condense that into one sentence: uh, the cavalry aren't going to arrive; they're not coming. Oh Lord. Okay. Well, you know what? On on this on this very cheery yeah. note, <laughs> I know. I mean, well, I guess no, one let, let, me, let me end it. Then let me end Sorry, that. Then well, on uh, one one white pull here. One white pull here. Go for it. Okay. Okay. Uh, what I'll say is because we have been mentioning Curtis Yarvin, he did bring up something that is actually a realistic opportunity. 
So he talks about like the the, the Anglo the, the sort of global American empire sort of retreating and crumbling, which we're going to see accelerating over the next ten years. And he sees this creating opportunities in in the periphery. Now there's going to become a uh, there's going to come a, a pivotal moment between between sort of global hegemony of the United States and China, where countries in the middle will be able to get away with things that the liberal order wouldn't let them. And in that gap, you're going, you can see you can see two movements in South Africa making moves uh, making moves that wouldn't have possibly happened under a previous dispensation. And that is, you know, the Afrikaner nationalists who 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 have ties to various institutions, who have who are building up concentrated um, places they call anchor towns, are building their own universities and their own sort of medical care and insurance infrastructure and everything. And then there's the Cape separatists and the Zulu separatists. And the thing about those a lot is that um, the likelihood of success is increasing by the day for, for separatist movements. And the, when push comes to shove, if they're, if they're really given autonomy, um, the, ability, the, ability, the ability of people who are against the West as it starts to crumble to take, to take the center stage is going to increase. And so at least for us, um, although certainly not for the Anglosphere who are genuinely screwed and will never recover, uh, we, have, we have a tiny window of opportunity to seize a little bit of autonomy for ourselves before the Chinese start telling us what to do. <laughs> but not just that. Let me end on a white pill because I do think it's important. Yeah. Um, I think a black pill is just pacify. They're the most pathetic thing that you can take. Don't do it. So yeah. here's the thing. You know that old saying, I mean, I'm not going to repeat the entire cliche of hard times, strong men, weak men, bad, uh, bad times. The silver lining of living through bad times is that you're going to see the creation of strong men. You have the opportunity to become a strong man within that pattern. You have the opportunity to live a heroic life. You have the opportunity to live like a pioneer like your ancestors did. Rather, I would rather live on that, as Rob said, living on the frontier rather than living in some comfortable society where I'm just a number. I get the fact that I live in South Africa. I mean, we've described how horrific some aspects of South Africa are, but I'm living the most fulfilled life that I can imagine. I would not be want to be anywhere else. I would not want to immigrate. I would not want it anywhere else. I am living exactly the type of life that gives me fulfillment, gives me excitement, gives me that idea of your rupang, following your calling, doing what you would you were destined to do, why why you were placed here by God, and that's what we are doing in South Africa. There, that's when right. I was little, when I was little, I remember asking my dad when I was very small, and he told me about how the our Dutch ancestors came here hundreds of years ago, and I asked him, but why are we still here? Why aren't we? in in the netherlands and he said well that's where time deposited us that's where god put us and we better make the best of it and that's what that's what every day of my life is like is making the best of where time and god deposited and placed me and that is the great silver lining of living in chaotic turbulent times is that you can you'll see pioneers and excitement and heroes made all around you. I mean, during the unrest in South Africa, people became heroes that have never done anything heroic in their lives, but they got the opportunity and they uh, come of the hour, come of the community. And it happened. We got heroes like uh, the, <laughs> the wheelchair sniper, a guy defending his shop. He's in a wheelchair, but he's sitting there with his rifle and he's defending it. And 
that's the nice thing about South Africa. Well, the nice thing about living this type of life in a, in a country that's so chaotic and so scary sometimes is you get that rare opportunity to be a pioneer again, something that's been robbed of you by modernity, something that a lot of young men specifically in the West don't have the opportunity to do. If you're just an accountant in somewhere in the United States, you can't really pioneer anything. If you're living in South Africa and your community is facing an existential crisis, you can be a pioneer and you have this rare opportunity. So it is something very abstract. It's very difficult to explain, but that's that's my life and Rob's life as well here in South Africa. And I, I speak for myself when I say I wouldn't have it any other way, but I think Rob also feels the same. Do you, Rob? <laughs> no, I, I really yeah, like I mean, the, look, the my, angle. My, I, I'm in a safer part. I'm a safer part of the country than ours is, but um, yeah, I mean, like you know, what I could, what I could be. I'm not, I'm not a very exceptional guy. Um, so if I was, if I was in, if I became a graduate in Europe, you know, middle management, I'd probably, you know, the the best success I could hope for is like, you know, my dad being senior management in some multinational. Um, but you get your own you know, office. <laughs> yeah i get my own office it would be okay but i mean you know it's the, the the amount of meaning you extract from it is is more limited and um you know you can achieve something much grander if you're fighting for something that you believe in even if it's even if you're playing a small part even if you're you know even if you're not likely to succeed you know if you're if you're just sort of putting your all in and pulling the boats along a little bit it's it's a good feeling it, it makes it makes a lot of difference you know yeah. so i like i like this white pill it's a it's a, it's a nice way to, to wrap things up but before yeah. I, I let you guys go i'm going to ask you the question of the show um would uh just in succession first first ernst and then and Rob, then robert um is there a subversive someone that you know that's not that well known uh a thinker would be writer you know anything from like video game designers to filmmakers we've had on um yeah, that, that you'd recommend that people check out or, or, you know, draw inspiration from? Now, I wouldn't say they're incredibly subversive in the way that maybe the more, more dissident right would frame them, but I think there are two thinkers that I take a lot of uh, inspiration from. The first one is uh, Flip Bass, the, the founder of the Solidarity Movement. He wrote a book, uh, the, the Road to Self-Governance. Unfortunately, that book's not been translated in English yet. So, but when it is, I'll definitely uh, share it around, but that's definitely one of the, the big thinkers. And another one, again, unfortunately, is not an English writer, but he's, uh, I can't find his book now, it's M.P.F. van Beek Lowe, is the greatest Afrikaner philosopher that ever lived. And uh, he wrote extensively on the problems that South Africa faces, and he, he is one of the biggest influences I have in my life. But if I have to reference someone that is English, that is written in English that people can can check out, I would definitely say uh, go check out some of the writings of uh, Samuel Huntington. If you are interested in any of the topics regarding in the West and the rest, he wrote that uh, excellent essay in the 90s called The West and the Rest, which pretty much goes into detail that the West needs to stop trying to make the world Western and rather to go through a cultural revival and fit, almost in a Peterson way, fix your own house before you try to clean up your neighborhood. 
So yeah, if, if you, like I said, I've given two Afrikaans recommendations, but if I can give an English recommendation of someone that really writes brilliantly and gives a lot of insights in a time where he shouldn't actually have a lot of these insights, he's giving insights that are just as relevant as if they were written today, I would say Samuel Huntington, right? Read a book like A Clash of Civilizations. It's absolutely amazing. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to sort of like cheat on the question and say, look, I mean, if I start to recommend, like I could recommend the ones that uh, Ernst recommended. It's very, very good. There's a lot of good Afrikaner intellectuals. If you speak Dutch, you'll figure you'll be able to read the stuff with a little bit of a challenge, but it'll be fine. Um, but the 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 thing about the thing about this is we we're saturated with with, with the, the the right wing dissidents at the moment. I think I think the circle kind of knows its own now. Everyone kind of has identified the major problems. Um, I think what what is lacking now is proper studying of uh, the institutions that oppose us. Um, so you've got I mean like you've got liberals sort of like reluctant liberals like James Lindsay are doing an okay ish job. Um, like in terms of detail, the guy's really gone into it. I don't want to knock him because he's he's actually pretty good at what he does. Um, he just doesn't come up with very cool conclusions, but he's good at sort of explaining the stuff. If that makes any sense, I think what's lacking is reading reading opposing material. And so, there's some really interesting stuff in the decolonial literature. So France Fanon, I'd recommend a lot of people read France Fanon. Um, and then what I'd actually recommend is reading a lot of UN policy documents, reading a lot of founding philosophers like Julian Huxley, reading, you know, um, Jan Smuts, read a lot of Jan Smuts, all of these, you know, uh, uh, Shaw and the Fabians, um, you know, all of the ideas that, that, that form the foundation for what we're dealing with now are very, very useful to understand. So I think just, you know, dig into that a little bit. I mean, that's what I would do. Um, that's what I'm starting to do more of. And then everyone, you don't need to tell anyone else to read history. Everyone just reads history. Uh, everyone in these circles reads, you know, interesting niche history. Now I don't think anyone needs any more of a nudge. So <laughs> like I think everyone's doing okay. I think it's, yeah, yeah it's definitely uh, useful to expand, you know, beyond uh, Burnham though, though he is interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. So thank yeah, you yeah. so much guys for, for coming on. This was super instructive, uh, slightly uh, worrying, but also the, the final white pill, you know, yeah, I like I like living in heroic times. Uh, may may the strong men appear. <laughs> We're waiting for them. Um, and yeah, let's I also, have some fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess. And that's the thing. That's the thing. You don't have to wait for them. You can be one of them. That's the that's yeah. the beautiful thing of living in these times. Exactly. I mean, I've I've done my part. I've just had a baby. I mean, I feel like I'm contributing to uh, to whatever oh, that's lineage. So heroic. Yeah, that's well done. Congratulations. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's it's wonderful. I recommend it to, to everyone. I don't know if it contributes to, to being a strong man, but it definitely helps uh, kind of a, enhance the experience of being a woman. Um, so um, I also want to recommend that everyone follow you guys uh, at Conscious uh, Caracal on Twitter and YouTube. Uh, and at, uh, is it you, Marhavane? At, yeah, yeah, it's a it's, it's a closer nickname that a link, nick, uh, roommate gave to me when I was in university. It means burglar, um, but it's that's uh, Umarobane is U M A R H O B A N E. Yeah, and uh, there's some stuff there. Or you can just Google my name, Robert Digan, and some stuff will come up. There's some YouTube stuff. There's some Substack. Um, yeah. Excellent. For me, it's just, uh, yeah, there's the YouTube and the Twitter. And then also, if you want to 
support organizations, uh, the organization that me and Bo, me both, me and Rob work for AfriForum. You can become a friend of AfriForum. So if you just Google friends of AfriForum, you'll go get to a website there where you can become a donor in regards to helping parallelism in South Africa. And I mean, a, a dollar goes a long way with our exchange rates. Uh, I always joke yeah. with people when they say, what can I send you to help you out in this mission? I'm like, well, you send me a dollar. I can, with one dollar, I can pretty much buy lunch so yeah well so, you yeah. know what you, you'd be funding the control group in the south africans experiment shall i say mm-hmm. oh my god <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah that that would be my final show would be if you really want to if you're serious about supporting these types of initiatives uh you can become a friend of afri forum and uh you'll be paying me and rob help pay me and rob salaries <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Please, please yeah. do contribute and let's uh, let's observe our, our fellow guinea pigs <laughs> on the other side of the planet. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I, I hope things things turn around and I hope, you know, parallelism works there because we're probably going to need to implement uh, in other parts of the world very soon. So much luck to you guys and, and everything you work on. And thanks again for coming on. Oh, thank All you very right. much for the platform and the excellent conversation. The more people... Uh, the more people get uh, the opportunity to listen to what's going on here and get a clearer picture of what's going on, I think the more people or the, the better it will be for countries that are facing our type of problems in the future. I mean, if you could get a glimpse into the future for free, why would you deny it? Yeah, absolutely. A terrifying glimpse into the future. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you.